the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we begin with today's guest, I uh, do want to mention that I do have a Patreon. If you're enjoying the episodes, definitely feel free to check out the Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, which of course stands for Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Uh, we appreciate all the patrons thus far that have been helping out. And uh, But any, anyhow, don't want to waste too much time on that. I want to introduce today's guest, returning guest actually, Jack Collis host of Utopia TV on YouTube, currently unemployed thanks to uh, COVID-19. Yes, indeed. Listen here, Jack. <laughs> Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last time I was on, we talked about Nick Land uh, going fast. And uh, this time I think we're doing the opposite, talking about going slow. <laughs> the theme of this episode is fuck work. Yep, basically. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're here to talk about anti-work politics. Um, and yeah, to that end, we read a couple pieces like we did last time. Uh, this time we read the introduction to David Graeber's Bullshit Jobs. Uh, we read Bob Black's The Abolition of Work. Um, Gilles Dove's, I think it's called Getting Rid of Work. And Alfredo Bonanno's Arm Joy. And I think those are four kind of like yeah, classics like, from across the spectrum of yeah, it's you good, know it's a good diverse kind of survey of of the topic i think because we're getting the kind of post left we're getting the insurrectionary anarchist view we're getting graber's kind of like what like a i don't know he's sort of anarchist more or less yeah i mean an anthropologist he's coming at it from definitely a very academic standpoint but still very interesting and then we get the kind of sober political economy of dove typically mm -hmm. uh considered Part of the left com sphere, yeah. more or less. Yeah, but I mean, I I wouldn't call his work sober by any means for political yeah. economists. I mean, it's definitely I think, very inflammatory. <laughs> true. Yeah, true. but I think in, in comparison to like uh, after because I've read the banano piece mm -hmm. and to Dove, so it's like oh yeah, yeah, totally different. Yeah, <laughs> the the banano po banano polemic is is quite good. And, yeah, and inflammatory rousing. starts yeah. with a bit about shooting. A fascist, fascist journalist in the kneecaps. Uh, yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, but I think we'll start by looking at Graeber's bullshit jobs mm -hmm. piece. Yeah. Which, uh, what would you say? The, I guess the, the thesis here is... Yeah, so um, I think he kind of came to that topic when he was uh, researching... Uh, for another book, which is about kind of bureaucracy. And uh, I think it has kind of colored a lot of his experience in academia, uh, what he calls the infiltration of like managerial mindset into 
academia and other spheres of life where it previously, you know, wasn't such a big deal. Uh, he talks about his own experiences with like having to, you know, spend half his time not researching, but uh, filling out, you know, peer reviews and student assessments and things like that. But then he kind of expands the critique to society at large. And it all kind of like started with this one survey he sent out to um, people on Twitter. I think it was Twitter. Uh, and he basically found that, or no, it was based off a, a YouGov survey. And the survey found that 37% of people in the UK, 40% of people in Holland, basically across the first world, there are just you know, legions of workers who believe that their own job contributes nothing to society, essentially. And uh, he he doesn't, you know, interrogate the phenomena too far in the actual introductory piece, but he asks kind of like, I think the interesting question he brings up, um, John Maynard Keynes, who said that in 1930, he said that by 2030, uh, each person will probably work an average of 15 hours a week and Graeber is questioning what went wrong basically. Yeah. yeah. And I can't remember, was it someone else? I don't know if it was black or banano kind of referenced, um, how this, uh, or they kind of tiptoed around this notion of like, that reminds me of Baudrillard's like this transition from production to consumption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that, uh, he, like Graeber kind of, the, the traditional economic, economic narrative is that, you know, you start out with a largely agrarian society, then industrializ industrialization takes off. You start to get a secondary sector, which is like manufacturing, and then a developed economy becomes more of a service economy. But there's kind of like, within that economic categorization, there's like primary, that's agriculture, secondary, industrialization third is service and within the third graber kind of identifies a fourth sector which is the administrative sector so you know politicians uh lawyers uh like college or medical administrators insurance people uh just a massive amount of uh what he identifies as kind of redundancy and uh inefficiency yeah sort of a lot of Paper, shuff paper, paper shufflers, for sure. Yeah, people who, and, and these are like, these are the people who he finds in the YouGov survey tend to feel like they are the ones with bull bullshit jobs. They feel their job contributes nothing to society, maybe because their division of labor is so intense that they can not perceive what they're contributing, but also, I think, in a large part because. These are sectors that could either be, you know, automated out of existence or I, I think those are the two kinds of bullshit jobs is, you know, you're doing something that could be automated or you're doing something that could be eliminated by eliminating some kind of administrative redundancy. So like in my personal experience, I, I think about this with the first two jobs I had right out of college. Uh, my first job was uh, working in the basement of the Texas Senate proofreading bills with a team of 20 people we would just like go through and do what you know th this job has existed for like a hundred years and we were basically doing what any basic spell checking software can do in you know a millisecond uh so that's you know the example of the bullshit job that could be eliminated by automation whereas the other my second job 
I was canvassing for a environmental nonprofit. We were kind of going door to door, uh, raising funds, just pestering people, you know, like those people who show up at your door and give you a impassioned, but clearly scripted speech. Um, and I, I pretty quickly, I, I was miserable at both of these jobs with the second one. I, I, the first one, we just like the most of the day we sat around and I, I'd kind of like just gotten out of college. I was very idealistic. I was like, my job should be changing the world. And I felt very disillusioned with the fact that I was basically just, you know, proofreading. And I think looking back at it, I would easily take that job again because like <laughs> we spent whatever time we did, we weren't proofreading, we could literally do whatever we want. So I spent several hours, like, uh, I think I was watching like the wire at the time. <laughs> uh, I would nap on several occasions. I, I read like, uh, I think I read The State and Revolution and a couple of books and books and uh, Conquest of Bread. Like it was when I was first getting political. And uh, yeah, looking back on it, I, I would take all that free time in a heartbeat. Um, but the second job, you know, I realized very quickly that all the money we were fundraising for ended up going to paying our canvassers. Like I was a canvasser director, but we were paying canvassers minimum wage to walk around in like the sweltering Texas summer heat. Uh, knocking on doors and all this, you know, was ostensibly to get the organizations, uh, like I won't name them, but they're kind of like a public interest fund uh, founded, I think in part by Ralph Nader. And uh, they were basically, you know, we were basically canvassing to get the word out and pay two staffers who were kind of like lobbyists lobbying the Texas Senate for uh environmental regulation, which is a Sisyphean task in its own right. Uh, yeah. I mean, so I, I felt both of those jobs that, and I, that I view as a you know job that could be eliminated due to administrative reshuffling, you know, first off, our government should take care of environmental protection without having to sustain this massive network of NGOs and nonprofits that are cleaning up after it. But second off, like really most of our fundraising was paying these minimum wage canvassers to just complete or completely i don't know repeat this feudal cycle yeah um so yeah that's kind of his thesis of bullshit jobs is uh questioning what you know of the work that currently exists doesn't need to be done at all i think it's kind of like a very interesting parallel to marx has this theory of socially necessary labor time which is the amount of labor time necessarily necessary to complete like a necess necessary task like you know growing food or making clothes or whatnot. I think this is a shit posting. A theory. Yeah. <laughs> this is a theory, I think, of socially unnecessary labor time. So, what labor time is being done throughout the economy that really is redundant? Yeah. Um, I should say, start, start off by just saying that I don't think that I've ever had a job that I liked. Um, I don't, I can't imagine having a job that I would enjoy doing so <laughs> i mean I, I will say like yeah so i i think the ones that graber identifies that people get tend to get more satisfaction out of our you know service jobs he seems to think it, like those are generally the happiest people in his responses because they are immediately able to see the tangible right. you know results of their work they're far less alienated from whatever it is they do they're not working on an assembly line you know making one part of a car or something like that. They're cooking a meal that eventually goes out and feeds someone. And you can immediately see in real time the results of that. And I think 
the the job I had before being furloughed because of COVID, uh, I was working at the front desk of a gym. And I, I would honestly say I got more job satisfaction out of that job than any of the quote unquote serious jobs I've had. Uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of just to, you know, pay my way through grad school, but I, I was helping people out, you know, when necessary administering first aid, I felt like I was useful in a sense that I didn't yeah. feel like I was at the other two jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just in general, making a very clear distinction that, yeah, fuck a bunch of working. Uh, I don't understand the notion of like people that like having a job and like doing a job and take some kind of pride in that. I mean, the kind of professions you mentioned. Yeah. Right. I guess, I guess so. Um, to a degree, but like there's sort of a thanklessness as part of the service industry in general. Yeah. And the way that consumers treat people in the service industry or like the customer service industry, it's not only do you have a job to do that has its own requirements and metrics and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, but you have to... There's effective labor that goes on with you it. Ha- the performance yeah. element of it, like you have to pretend to care about people's issues and complaints and, mm-hmm. and so forth, and you're sort of the front line for the the sort of metaphysical entity of the company or the corporation, but you're on the front lines. You get the you get to eat the shit. Yeah, um, absolutely. No matter what, like the company itself could make a mistake or like developers or whomever like behind the scenes and it's always the service industry folks that are getting shit on yeah by the public and so it's like the element of control that you're under but also the control of like you're very um you know what i mean that alienation not only of of like between between individuals because of this very bizarre relationship and i think maybe the food service industry is like Mm-hmm. One of the most blatant things where, like, there's a weird way that people treat, you know what I mean? They're yeah, like, you're yeah. sort of a peon For or sure. you're like this. Uh, I think you know, our you're generation not is pretty good about it. I think, you know. I mean, to a degree, but yeah. even then. I, I feel like I've definitely been socialized to treat service workers as if they're, you know, they're serving you, you know, yeah. like there's definitely, but I, I, I get it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that is kind of maybe a. I think it was in the the Zizek pandemic book that I read and did an episode on not long ago, but it was, yeah, it's like this, uh, this emotional labor that you have to perform Mm -hmm. in being cheerful and like all this other shit that on top of just the, like the labor aspect of the job itself. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, like you use the word frontline to describe service industry workers. And when you, (laughs) when you think of like what happened with COVID, I'm sure that the majority of people who were infected were probably working service jobs. Like, I I think about like working in the front desk at the gym, like we were, you know, on a regular basis and we were open till like halfway through, maybe even further than halfway through March. Like, you know, you're just handling people's IDs. You're just, you know, uh, wiping up fluids and things like that, like service, service workers are definitely exposed to this all in a way that, you know, I think administrative workers weren't. Yeah. And there's, you know, that there's that interesting kind of quote in Graeber's thing, again, going back to COVID where he kind of says, what if an entire class of workers were to disappear? And he kind of quickly comes to the conclusion that, you know, if the service workers, if the nurses, the garbage men, were to suddenly disappear, then society would collapse into in on itself. But he concludes that, you know, I, I think this whole kind of sudden 
talk about essential workers is very revealing oh, about sure. which work is socially yeah. necessary and which is socially <laughs> unnecessary. Because like, you know, if you were sent home, I hate to say it, but like something about your job is superfluous to the functioning of society. Like, you know, if you're a marketer and you can do your job from home, then you should maybe ask yourself, do I have a bullshit job? Yeah. So it was Graeber himself that mentioned uh, what Keynes didn't anticipate in this whole, in his calculus, was this rise of the consumer society, which, like I said, definitely recalls uh, Baudrillard. And I mean, so, which Keynes was, you know, kind of like the architect of. Like Keynesianism is named after him. That's kind of the economic philosophy of having a consumer-based economy. Yeah. But I think that, so here what I think is interesting is to take this, this is something Baudrillard's very preoccupied with. And I think here there's a very interesting application in that a lot of these jobs are simply simulacra mm-hmm. or simulacrum, I guess. Simulacra. Yeah. Yeah. Plural, right? That there are, there's no tie to any need, any actual human need or societal need. Well, they're like superficial needs that are created by. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. A, it's this false, yeah, this made up. Yeah, it's like this the simulated job just to just to produce so just so you can have a wage so that you consume yeah other products. Yeah, and I mean I think Graeber has a good line about it which is that, you know, it's the result of an economy that was never consciously designed in any way. Yeah. You know, like 1200 years ago some guy starts doing agriculture and now we've got massive urban sprawl of people doing bullshit jobs to make a living. And needing to kind of buy into the reality of those jobs like they are real things. Like there are a lot of authors who talk about playing the game of capitalism for what it is. And I think that, you know, money and things like that have taken on a very real life of their own. And you kind of have to buy into society if you don't want to. This is something Bonanno talks about in uh, Arm Joy, which is like if you don't uh, accept these, you know, superficial rules and... uh, structures at face value you're kind of regarded as insane like the very idea of being anti-work i think when you say it to people doesn't click yeah definitely like it, it you know people will immediately assume you're some kind of like uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest style you know yeah they've never <laughs> they've never honestly interrogated the real there you're not there's no encouragement there's no incentive no one mm-hmm. this is not something that's uh, brought up in the popular discourse what i think is interesting here in this context of Keynes and this prediction and and the move to the consumer society is that this idea of voting with your dollar and how Mm -hmm. what has happened, what has driven this is that the ruling class that has the money to push the real, that really pushes what gets produced and consumed instead of opting for, like they've opted for a higher standard of living, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. for themselves Mm -hmm. (laughs) and everyone else it merely has to survive in the aftermath of that push for greater. I think that's fair, but I also I, I think for, you know for the one percent. They there was definitely like a democratization of you know leisure that happened, especially in the Keynesian post-war era, where you know all these you know things that were considered luxury goods became kind of the center of economic life. You know, manufacturing TVs and cars and. You know these technologies. Although again, that are, these are not these are not uh, 
necessities by any, not necessities at all by any means no uh but so that's it, what i'm talking about is those the tvs cars etc those are mm-hmm. quality of life in quotes yeah improvements rather than a rather so the trade-off is yeah the shorter work week for cars and television and, and consumer debt that becomes mm-hmm. just another means of control and and, and I, yeah whoever I, gets to that as well i think that's a good kind of transition into the i guess what banano and black kind of talk about about the boredom of everyday life like they, they talk about how even free time is structured by capitalism you know not only in the sense that uh the things that we surround ourselves with and the you know uh, ways we choose to decompress or enjoy ourselves are more and more channeled through commodities and things like that through TV shows like uh, think things that are themselves kind of programmed Spectacle, by capital yeah yeah or like now like we're constantly producing content for social media mm-hmm. in our time off and I mean I'm just as guilty about posting a thousand times a day as, as anyone so there is that which even I think is a further entrenchment of this constant productivity and this constant consumption. Yeah, I I think that um, there's a really good quote from Black where he says that uh, I enjoy the I I enjoy the downtime that, you know, laziness entails, but uh, I'm not promoting the time disciplined safety valve called leisure, which is non work for the sake of work. And leisure time is spent recovering from work more so than actually leisure, you know, uh, there's this concept of reproductive labor that kind of is more and more centered in discourse around Marxian economics, which is the labor that goes into reproduct- reproducing our labor power. So the time we spend cooking, cleaning, service work, what was traditionally considered woman's work, but has now been kind of outsourced to the uh, service industry as women have entered the workforce or the gig even now like the, the gig, gig economy the yeah. gig service ind- with dog walkers and babysitting and mm-hmm. and who in many ways food, food delivery etc like all that kind of stuff is our symptoms although not all of them are like super direct in terms of housework but i mean there are cleaning like now you can get handyman type stuff done around the house cleaning etc etc like those are now definitely moving towards gig and I, I think it's also interesting how those people have ended up kind of being essential workers in, in their own right in the oh, whole corona absolutely. shakeup. Of course. Like, in so many ways, I feel like we've de-skilled ourselves to the extent that, you know, I should be able, as a fully grown man, to cook my own meal. But I, instead, I am constantly ordering takeout and whatnot. Uh, I mean, I clean my house. I don't hire a cleaner, but a lot of people do that. Yeah. We've gotten used to basically outsourcing aspects of our lives that would traditionally be uh, things that we do in our own time. Here's the thing, though, um, is that now those things, if those things are not done, and specifically COVID has really revealed this, if there isn't frivolous spending, consumer spending on Starbucks and et cetera, et cetera, then the entire economy will like the economy collapses and we've got 40 million unemployed people because Mm -hmm. there must be constant money in circulate like the velocity of money must maintain a certain speed yeah absolutely and there's no goods and services have to be if if no one's consuming those things then you know like i said yeah we're at 40 million plus unemployed yeah capitalism just can't broach this kind of slowdown in life i mean it, it really doesn't 
allow for time off. Even, you know, they talk about, I, I think Bonanno has a good quote about how, uh, or no, I think it's Black who says, when you get back from a vacation, you have to relax from, <laughs> like, yeah. recover from Take your a va- vacation. Vacation like, from the vacation. Yeah. Like, you know, even the time off that we get in capitalism is kind of, you know, you, you spend it looking at the clock uh, or, you know, you get Sunday night anxiety. It like it, it, it's time off, but it's not time freely spent. Right. Yeah. To bring Lacan into it a bit, too, is we have this sort of like the super egoic injunction to enjoy as well. And so we feel this immense pressure to have to experience jouissance and our time off. And so that has a commensurate guilt element to it. If we're not like we always have to look back and, oh, what what have I accomplished this weekend? Or like, oh, did I enjoy? I didn't enjoy enjoy my weekend enough. Mm -hmm. So then there's like this guilt like, oh, I I didn't do anything or like I wasn't productive on my time off or Mm -hmm. I didn't enjoy my time off as much as I should, which is another like layer on top of this sort of phenomenon yeah. that we're describing. Um, interestingly, too, going back to Graeber's piece, one thing that I want to touch on here that I think is particularly salient in our times is that he discusses a bit about in the 60s whenever there was sort of this element, this populace with a, with free time on their hands was a very much a threat to, Absolutely, the, yeah. <laughs> to the status quo. And I think very obviously we see that same scenario playing out right now with COVID yeah. and the protests and, and things and mm-hmm. what we've been seeing in terms of social unrest, very much a result of those, a lot of those 40 million Americans not having to go to work or mm-hmm. if they have been working, they've been working from home or, you know, if they're unemployed, there's no yeah, I mean, safety net to right. catch them. Exactly. Yeah. There's that, too. It's like yeah. the state says, OK, you you can't have a job and you we also won't give you any, like we will require that your job is shut down. But mm-hmm. then when it comes time to, you know, support you while you're unemployed because of our. It's been twelve hundred dollars <laughs> since March. Yeah. And, and there's like that's the. Yeah. The primary contradiction, I think, that you see happening here. But yeah. I think one that's important to to mention is that this consumer society that we live in is is more of a method of control. Absolutely. Control yeah. society. Yeah, I, I totally I, I get that a hundred percent. And I mean I, I think that there's a lot to be said for the way that, you know, I, I think the left kind of didn't really like the last time that I think there was an anti-work movement in the United States. It was the hippies and the left really had no idea what to do with the, you know, rebellious youth who weren't into the classical party organization, uh, aggressive labor unions. They just kind of wanted to fuck around and smoke pot and live on communes and waste their time in, you know, whatever way they saw fit. And I think that they were, ahead of their time and the left still hasn't really grappled with the legacy of what it means to, you know, allow for less work to kind of sink in. I I think Bob Black has a good quote, which is, you know, uh, if there were no workers, who would the left have to organize? Like the workers are kind of the left's bailiwick, you know, Uh, and so much of the struggle is formulated around work but i think 
Bookchin, who's, you know, in a lot of ways, Black's like polar opposite, he has this good quote, which is that, you know, the Marxism really failed to paint a picture of the worker as a fully formed individual. And, you know, not all of our life is spent at work. I think a lot of people don't necessarily conceptualize of themselves as workers. They think of themselves as, you know, family members, as uh, musicians, as whatever they might do in their free time. They are increasingly, I think, defining themselves less around the workplace in a way that I think needs to be accounted for, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, like myself would not identify as, as a worker <laughs> ever. I don't think like just because of my loath- loathing for the whole, the whole idea of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the yeah. sort of author authoritarian nature of having to go to a place at a specific time and do it like there is no freedom in the workplace. Like we have this sort of weird conception of politics and economy in the, particularly in America where I like, like, I like economic sphere is totally, it's separate from, from politics when they are not there. Black has that great quote, which is like, uh, you know, um, there's more freedom in a moderately de-Stalinized yeah. <laughs> uh, dictatorship than there is in the average American workplace. You know, our offices are places of deep hierarchy and lack of freedom. There's no, you know, there's no such thing as democracy when it comes to work. The only thing free about so-called free time is that it doesn't cost the boss anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a great... Also Bob, like, Bob has a way with words, for I also sure. like on yeah. the... The Bob Black piece, his uh, the Pol Pot regime at least had a vision, however blurred, of an egalitarian society. We kill people in the six-figure range at least in order to sell Big Macs and Cadillacs to the survivors. Our forty or fifty thousand annual highway fatalities are victims, not martyrs. They died for nothing, or rather, they died for work. But work is nothing to die for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and Black has that other kind of great figure, which is that like. If you were to enforce OSHA regulations, the entire economy would be ground to a complete standstill. And he put, has a statistic, which is that like the average workplace receives an OSHA visit every 42 years or something like that. So there's no, you know, such thing as safety yeah, or this regulation. Liberal, this idea of liberal oversight is yeah. total bullshit. It's fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because that's simply not how it's all. It's like this. It's like the industry develops the industry does something horrendous. It finally take it like people have to struggle for decades to get something done. Some regulation mm-hmm. in place, the regulation gets put in place 30 years later, the capitalists figure out how to remove their, how to sidestep the regulation or, you legally. know, they capture the regulatory right. body. Like, you know, I think that was one of those things that kind of Ralph Nader was railing on about was the fact that most of these industries, the regulators are just lobbyists from that industry who were, you know, you you think about something like Uber, for example, that it's already is solving a need that we've already solved for with, with taxi cabs. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, again, it's cutting out the innovation is figuring out how how to to deregulate how to taxi industry, how to remove. Yeah. Yeah. How to like circumvent the regulations that were fought for, by the labor movement in in the first place because mm-hmm. of like that's the fucking total absurdity and insanity of it yeah i think that's totally fair i mean i think that this whole you know 
the post Fortis kind of decentralization of work and the, you know, everyone is now an independent contractor instead of a waged worker. I think uh, there's this guy, Andre Gores, who has a really good point, which is that we really have moved past like wage labor and are now kind of in a phase where it's just contracts. You know, you get a contract to work for a limited amount of time. You maybe do that job for a little while. But a lot of people, especially the people who are working these so-called bullshit jobs, are just like going in one door out the other. The gig economy is almost exclusively 1099 employment yeah, yeah, no exactly. Benefits, yeah. No, you know, no minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. So. And that's not even the kind of stuff that Black was writing about. Yeah, like he, he I know, wrote right? this, I think, in the '90s when you know he's writing about the rigid hierarchy of the factory floor and the office. But there's this entire, you know, it's not even you're not even working for a boss with when you're an Uber driver or something like that. You're just yeah, working like for the app itself. Network. It's yeah, a network. <laughs> it's like you know, kind of. I'm sure Land is like popping a stiffy looking at this like AI overlord telling you to drive to this part of the city and yeah, like exactly you know yeah <laughs> yeah um <laughs> I don't know I think to this Pol Pot section or where he's talking about how we kill people in the six figure range in order to sell Big Macs and Cadillacs mm-hmm. to the survivors how apt is that for what's going on with with COVID and oh yeah absolutely and the, yeah. what are they the I for, can't even think of the fucking word now what is essential workers essential workers yeah 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 uh, essential workers that are not treated like they're essential work yeah exactly I mean I mean I think we've gotten and this is like something Graver talks about is like we've gotten so used to treating you know people who are doing valuable work like he he talks about the way that public opinion has been marshaled against like teachers unions and nurses unions like these are really thankless jobs that are absolutely essential and are rewarded far less lucratively than, you know, things like media consultant or, uh, I don't know, corporate lawyer, like hedge fund manager. Uh, what is it like private equity? You know what I mean? People that don't really do anything, yeah. but destroy. Yeah. Yeah. Destroy like surplus. They consume. The yeah, surplus. exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's see what else. I don't know. He's got a, I like the way that he wraps up the piece. No one should ever work. Workers of the world relax. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, great line for sure. And uh, at the beginning, I agitate for permanent revelry. Right. Right. Uh, he says, um, big cosign on those two quotes. Yeah. 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 Black is, is definitely a fun writer for sure. Um, I definitely like his bit about how it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's meaningless to call what, currently exists democracy it's more like factory fascism or office oligarchy i thought that was a great line for sure but yeah i mean i think uh historically you know we are working like but this is another kind of bit that black goes into which is that excluding the uh you know earliest factory workers who worked like 60 hour work weeks we are really working more than any other time in history like we have a comparative work week today to like the only people who worked longer hours than people do today were American slaves who had a lifespan of something like 20, 25 years. And comparatively, this is a recent development with like, you know, peasants in uh, medieval Europe, even in brutal countries like Russia had one out of every four days off uh, in 
And then he, he goes into that bit about the original affluent society, which was the hunter-gatherer tribes where they worked at, on an average of 15 hours a week. And a lot of their work was what we would consider play, you know, hunting, uh, like catching, fishing. Th- these were leisurely activities that weren't, you know, backbreaking and, you know, yeah, it's a totally different. boring in the same way that the modern job is. It's a different context in particular because you're so you're stripped out of that social element of it, mm-hmm. right? Like you're stripped out of the the clan or the hunter gatherer, you know what I mean, your tribe what what have you, right? There's you're totally isolated. Like you feel like you're this automatized person. You can't see how you fit into the greater whole, mm-hmm. which in itself that atomization aspect of it helps perpetuate yeah the same thing um because i've often i've had a lot of great success in arguing with someone like my dad to say hey look you want to bitch about collectivization everything is already collectified collectivized we're already producing everything socially as it is Mm -hmm. like these in groups um but the rewards of that the surplus that's generated is obviously not distributed amongst the workers, but yeah. we're, we capitalism is very much a collective, productive uh, mode of production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, it, it definitely doesn't feel like there is any organic collective that still can oh, be definitely. said to exist. I mean, right. like, yeah, you are, but like of, de facto, de facto, you are part of a like a, a company is a small like social unit. Or, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's another kind of interesting interesting point that uh, I think Dove talks about, which is that like, you know, at least like with the serf or the slave or the sharecropper, you know, you had the obvious master that was clearly making you do things. But now you are supposedly an independent person. You're, you're supposedly your own boss, but ultimately you're still being channeled by these kind of abstract systems that you don't really have any control or say over yeah yeah absolutely because that kind of like i said earlier that vote for vote with your dollars thing doesn't work whenever you know jeff bezos has four you know a trillion dollars and can really direct so much of what's getting produced absolutely because then you're like what you're what can you do how much choice does the consumer really have Mm -hmm. and you don't even have the option to you know subvert like when so much of production is controlled by the formal economy. You don't have the option to make things for yourself even really, you know, handicraft has totally disappeared. Things that like, you know, our ancestors could take care of all of their own needs. I think if you were to like bring a peasant into the future, he would view the average citizen as a profoundly stupid person who, you know, can't, you know, sew their clothes back together when they are in disrepair, they can't, cook most of their meals like they are they dependent clean, on yeah really like actually, we've been like, de hunt. very yeah division of labor which has like led to some i i think though this is the interesting contradiction for the left it's like there is this element of like the division of labor has its benefits dia- for sure. dialectical relations because it for on one side yes it fucks us and that it atomizes us and removes us from the like social or collective process of production itself and mm-hmm. and isolates us in that way but without that division of labor then 
you don't have these other like people are not going to be writing theory if we're spending all of our time it's impossible to have a feeding ourselves or like art etc etc so yeah i mean it's it's how this surplus was made but at this point you know i think there's a lot of a lot to be said for the fact that you know having professional artists and things like that it does not necessarily True. produce a rewarding culture like you yeah. have these people who are like the, the very few people who make art and are able to make money off of it are making you know art that's very uh kind of yeah it is there is that marketization commodified. it's commodified yeah, there's the commodification sure. yeah. that's the stark difference like this to some degree still like drama that has gone down on twitter over the last couple of days over the internet archive you've heard about that yeah um so the internet archive was kind of recently sued and forced to shut down it was a massive free library of ebooks and things like that you know with this division of labor you're kind of rewarding a very uh small clique of artists whereas in a free society where everyone you know worked as you know Keynes predicted 15 hours you would be able to have more uh kind of a more democratized culture, a more democratized, you know, form of art where more people get to participate yeah. in creating art on a daily basis and things like that. And I think even, you know, Mark Fisher talks about this kind of in, um, he has this essay, uh, the slow cancellation of the future, where he talks about the kind of deterioration of culture and how in the seventies, it was much more robust because you had a strong social safety net where people had felt they had this freedom to, you know, go out and, stake their, you know, chances on putting out a new record or a new style of music that didn't immediately have to seek immediate profit. Yeah. And I, th I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, the current division of labor has clearly gotten out of hand and that's what's produced so many of these bullshit jobs and just jobs that are necessary to maintain the current functioning yeah, of the economy. To produce the surplus for the, the powers that be. I mean, not even, not even that. I mean, like, I, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess they're, they're just there to keep the momentum going exactly. because, yeah, like the machine has to, like we said earlier with the velocity, there has to be a certain yeah. amount of transactions. Money has to be in circulation. Mm -hmm. There have to be transactions. There have to be exchange at a certain rate. Yeah. Or else the whole thing falls apart for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about kind of getting past that massive division of labor and i guess when it comes to that, that kind of i think brings us a little more naturally into the dave piece where he's talking about what it means to abolish work per se he's not saying a total lack of activity like everyone just does what they want all the time i mean yes everyone does what they want but it's not that no no activity is being done it's not it's just not happening in the form that capitalist work has kind of determined. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for the division of labor as kind of inherently dehumanizing, alienating. It, it's tied to class society in a way that's kind of inseparable. Like class, I think, is determined by and large what by what you do. It's it's not really an abstract concept of like how rich you are. It's It's right. what your role in the production process is, you know. Yeah, I think the division of labor really determines that in a way that is kind of prime. And like you said, that just to, as an aside note, I think the danger here is like when you have an existential threat, 
like climate change and when people don't know how to re when society can't even reproduce itself because no one because the division of labor has become so um what's the word i guess specialized exactly yeah, yeah specialized mm -hmm. then like what happens when there are crisis what happens when yeah food like the way that everything is done now is so fucking bizarre with like these ju right on time uh just in time it? production yeah mm -hmm. just in time production and like anytime any little king or bit in that chain absolutely goes yeah. down then the whole fucking system is disrupted and that's one initially there's, there's like, a really interesting case when uh like i think <laughs> a massive proportion of the world's condoms are made in indonesia and there was some instance where they had a natural disaster happen in, in, in Indonesia. I think it was a typhoon or something that, you know, disrupted the economy there. And suddenly around the world, there was a massive shortage of, I think, I don't know when this happened exactly, <laughs> but there was a significant spike in the right, like price of condoms and people couldn't find them as readily available. I mean, it's just an example of how like so many disparate industries have been assigned to random parts of the world and if one of those parts of the world is suddenly yeah thrown into chaos then there is a gap in you know necessities or functioning that we can't fill because we don't really know how to do anything yeah. on our own see this was one of my initially whenever the whole uh shelter in place scenario was was really cranking up was like fuck what the <laughs> Uh, we're gonna how are we not gonna starve because i mean people were like plowing crops under and you know the the videos of milk getting poured just down like the drains yeah, yeah. and shit and it's like fucking capitalism can't it can't accommodate yeah the market's not prepared to you know even like the food banks there weren't enough people working at the food banks to process all the donations like at every level mm -hmm. it's like a failure at every single level of mm -hmm. the whole fucking infrastructure of our of our society yeah yeah absolutely which is like a glaring fucking weakness mm -hmm. yeah i i think like there's that guy uh nasim talib who kind of talks about that kind of thing he's a very you know idiosyncratic uh, or no, I get a iconoclastic thinker. You can't really group. I don't know what to call him exactly, but he talks about this concept of, you know, fragility versus anti-fragility. And our system really is intensely fragile and can't really brook any kind of, you know, anything throwing it off. And I think that that is a inherent, you know, disadvantage of this. Yeah. Like I said, the massive division of labor, you know, you can't, adapt yeah what do you want to jump into next uh, do you want to jump into the banano i think it could be worth uh you know going more into the i guess economics of work and capital uh, i guess we could talk about the dove a little bit more okay um yeah so i mean you know when you talk about like what it means to abolish work itself you know we kind of i think uh have this conception of socialism that is very much been defined by the experiences of a very small subset of the socialist project that being like Marxist Leninist state societies. So I think that there are, you know, I guess this is my own kind of analysis, but there are kind of like four parts of what I would consider a socialist society to consist of those being, you know, the abolition of private property that's clearly happened before there have been cases where, 
the state manages everything. Uh, those are like, you know, the USSR most Marxist Leninist dictatorships. Then there's abolition of markets that's happened at certain times in those, uh, Marxist Leninist projects. Uh, you know, the USSR before 1923 had no markets It had war communism. Uh, the Paris commune had no markets. And then there's the abolition of representative, representative democracy. You have federated direct democracy that's happened in like Spain and Rojava. But the fourth part, I think the most vital part is the abolition of wage or of value, which is, you know, self-reproducing wealth in the form of money. Uh, and that hasn't ever kind of happened. And, you know, when people say socialism has never been tried, that's what they're talking about. So, I mean, what does it mean to abolish value is it seems like such a, you know, weird concept. Clearly we're not, you know, talking here about like, value as a subjective term, like, you know, I value a certain piece of art differently than some other person might value it. You're talking about value in an economic sense. So the reason that value and work are so inherently tied together is because, you know, in order to reproduce itself on a wider and wider scale, capital in the form of money needs to constantly be circulating. It needs to constantly, constantly be growing. And that's kind of what it does automatically. That's what has created such, you know, abundance and wealth is that capital just has this tendency to grow on a larger and larger scale. But along with that tendency, there's kind of a tendency to force people to work that, you know, you even see this in like cooperatives. They kind of, you know, are forced, despite the fact that there is no boss in a cooperative, you're kind of forced to work as long as you possibly can because you need to be making money at all hours. So people who work in cooperatives also often face the same kind of burnout that you would face in any other industry because you, in order to compete on the market, really have to be working at Just the, as, if not more productive. Absolutely, yeah. So productivity is really the name of the game there. Like it, It's what drives this kind of constant impulse to always be working. And, you know, this not only has, you know, very harmful effects, I think, on the social fabric, as we see in, you know, a, a society that is easily destabilized and a population that is constantly working and has no downtime or even, you know, social security, but also it can have, you know, very deleterious environmental effects because each hour of, you know, labor productivity is fueled by however many joules of energy. And to constantly be expanding the productivity of labor, you have to be expanding the productivity of machines, which you do through, uh, whatever energy source the system happens to be using, which in our case is very, very obviously oil intensive. So when you see the economy grind to a halt, you kind of, you know, it'll be interesting. There's that like shitty meme that went around at the very start of the coronavirus, which is like, oh, Carper returning to the, you know, uh, canals of Venice, nature is healing, we are the virus, whatnot. But there is, you know, something to be said for the fact that with the economy slowing down, you know, a lot of flights have been grounded. People who are traveling are in their cars less, less. The price of oil has tanked because, you know, no one is, it's, it's not as in demand. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for the fact that every hour of work we do, you know, you think about the office buildings that are powered 24 seven, you know, the daily commutes of, you know, people stuck in bumper to bumper traffic, how energy intensive this whole system is and how much work is just fueling climate change itself. It's like, it's like our planet is running like a low grade fever, almost like, you know, we're working ourselves into a 
<laughs> kind of like working ourselves to death. Pretty much. Literally I mean, and figuratively. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess literally and literally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, be, to be more accurate. I think too, just as a, an aside, you were just kind of make me think of how Americans were like the people most least likely to take a vacation, yeah. even on the vacation that we have, which is far less than any other industrialized, mm -hmm. you know, country, Western country, et cetera. Which I think is funny. And then like now you see this particularly in the sort of tech industry is this notion of unlimited PTO. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is like sure. this real fucked up. Yeah, psycho way, psychological yeah, torture. Like way to try to make yeah. you feel guilty yeah. about taking PTO so that you use less PTO. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of. I, I bet they fucking have run studies and they're like, oh, if we have a unlimited PTO policy, people will probably actually take less yeah. Because they don't want to feel like they're taking too much. I think there's like a whole kind of libidinal economy of guilt at play in the, you know, definitely the Protestant kind of mercantile work ethic has kind of made it so that, you know, when co like when COVID happened, I, I you know, I, dro I dropped out of grad school. I was working part time and just like feeling really anxious about work in general. And when COVID happened, I, I suddenly just like fell into this state of immense relaxation where it was like, I finally, you know, had permission to not be constantly beating myself productive, up about yeah. not being productive 24 seven, not, you know, always being reading. And I mean, the, the fact is that I had more time to do that stuff even. Yeah. It was just suddenly a massive weight lifted off my shoulders that I feel like, you know, at the same time, you're obviously working about worrying about where your next paycheck is going to come from. But there is like something to be said about the forced vacation that has been, you know, thrust upon you. Yeah, exactly. I want to go to this um, this section from the Dove piece that I think he's actually quoting Engels mm -hmm. because I had not, you know, gr granted I'm not the most familiar with Marxist political economy. But I thought this was interesting that I've not seen this here. It says, uh, <clears throat> labor is the living base of private property as it is the only source of private property. Private property is nothing more than materialized labor. If you want to deal, deal it a lethal blow, we would need to attack private property. Not only as an, object, an objective state, we must also attack it as an activity, as labor. To speak of free human social labor of labor without private property is one of the greatest misunderstandings that exist. Labor is by nature an enslaved activity, inhumane, antisocial, determined by private property, and created by private property. But I think this this yeah. equivalency between labor and private property mm -hmm. is a really fascinating way to think about it. Yeah. And I think, how does this function? Is this like is this dead labor? Is this like a primitive accumulation? Uh, I mean, no, I, I don't necessarily think it'd be primitive accumulation. It's more a factor of capital itself, this need for capital to constantly be reproducing and seeking the highest profit in order to... But in terms of like the generation of like how labor and private property are inexplicably, inextricably linked together and to destroy labor destroys private property and vice versa. Right. I mean, I, I think that the idea is that labor as a historical kind of, uh, sorry. Cause labor, like labor. Okay. Let me put it this way. Okay. So in terms of primitive, well, I, I don't, like I said, I don't know if this is dead labor or primitive accumulation, but mm -hmm. right. It's like 
all the labor that went into building the highways yeah um that built the uh the internet infrastructure well, pr- primitive accumulation is more like you know the appropriation of like peasant labor right. uh the appropriation of natural wealth like primitive accumulation is is what happened when uh, Babylon and Ur branched out and started absorbing. It's what happens when the state uh, absorbs cultures and things that are not within the realm of the state by just forcible appropriation. It's kind of the early yeah, stages okay. of capitalism were prim- primitive accumulation okay. where, yeah, first you had the, you know, Ur state reaching out and conquering tribes, and then you had uh, Europe doing imperialism. That's all within the realm of primitive accumulation and dead labor is kind of Marx's euphemism for capital itself, which is that, you know, we, we spend labor, we, we spend our labor time producing things like fixed capital, uh, in order to be then sold or or realized as kind of like Dove gives this example of like flour or fabric at a, at a certain point within the development of society, we're not producing them to for their use value right. as flour or fabric we're producing them for, for ex- their exchange for their you know role in fetching value right so exchange value la- labor becomes as to use exactly labor becomes ab- abstracted from its tangible you know uh immediate benefits and becomes a activity that is media- mediated and determined in large sense by, by money. capital that being kind of private property in Marx's estimation. Uh, and so, you know, you can't speak of not valorizing capital and creating money without speaking about the forms of work that that takes. So when we move to a system based on production for use as opposed to production for exchange, then we are no longer doing work in the sense of, you know, capitalist labor. Instead of like in the... Con- context of like a productivist model yeah exactly and productivism is kind of like one of the core critiques of this whole anti-work post-left banano insurrection insurrecto kind of like oeuvre or whatever uh productivism like what we are doing what so much of the economy is designed to do right now is just to produce endlessly and and that kind of logic is even reproduced in these kind of so bringing it back to the Marxist Leninist states, what everyone kind of associates with social socialism, they're kind of, and I think this is you know an area where a lot of like Western leftists can really kind of fall short in their historical in engaging. You have to kind of engage in a little bit of hermeneutics. The main goal of these societies were to catch up with the industrialized West because they'd been exploited for so long. Places like uh, feudal Russia, peasant China. Uh, Cuba, which was basically just like the Las Vegas of the Caribbean, like all of these places when they engage in their Marxist-Leninist kind of takeovers of the state and did what they called socialism. Yes, they'd abolished private property. Yes, they had done away with markets in certain senses. In some in some cases, they were, you know, doing it as a in managed by direct democracy, but they hadn't abolished capital because their prime goal was to create wealth to make up for the massive underdevelopment of these regions. Development to, of the productive forces. Development right? of the productive forces, yeah. So you can't have socialism without a developed economy. It's impossible to you know, have abundance when you don't have the tools for abundance. And that's kind of like 
when we talk about like I guess like Mao and ultra leftism and like what he was doing was basically trying to do socialism before the productive forces had gotten to the stage where they could. So he what would his attempt at like uh, I forget if it, it was the Great Leap Forward, not the Cultural Re- Revolution, but they tried to do like decentralized manufacturing that you would see in like a socialist economy, but they had not developed their industry to the point where you could make pig iron in your backyard with like a small furnace. And, you know, the attempts that they made at, you know, decentralized manufacturing failed because, again, the productive forces were not, you know, advanced. So, so in order to like understand what the goal of Marxism Leninism is in those like states, you have to understand that it's not about abolishing value. It's about managing value in a centralized manner in the hands of the state. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I, what I think it, it, it is important to, you know, distinguish that while those governments were run by socialists, they could not be said to be socialist because there was still value. There was still a profit motive kind of overlaying this whole apparatus of production and they needed to create and valorize capital in order to develop their productive forces Right. To get to the place where, like, you know, G- President Xi is like said that the goal is to finally transition to socialism a hundred years after Mao first did all that, you know, agricultural collectivization. 2050 is the goal, you know. Uh, obviously, in the West, we're in kind of a state of permanent economic stagnation where like capital is not really able to fetch a profit here in the way that it was during the, you know, Keynesian golden period of capitalism. It could probably be said that, you know, we've we're long past the expiration date where socialism should have been achieved. And we're kind of seeing the results of that in, you know, cultural economic stagnation, political discontent, all as a result of this kind of, you know, natural stalling out of the valorization of capital. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, that kind of went on a tangent from... <laughs> <Sorry>. No, it was <laughs> good. Yeah, it was good for sure. I just, I'm not sure what to refer to this notion of like, you know what I'm saying? Like their labor created the modern world, right? Yeah. The sky, the skyscrapers, the infrastructure, yeah. the et cetera. Like they, all that labor produced, we now enjoy the benefits of that all the socialized production of the entire, I mean, really the entire history of the human race, mm-hmm. we get to realize that now. Yeah, absolutely. It was all kind of like, if it wasn't for us to at some point take hold of for our own, you know, enjoyment and free development as free individuals, then what was it for? I guess like that's where there are kind of like these two models of like what, like Land's model is just that we do this over and over and over again and, you know, develop into the solar system and develop, you know, artificial intelligence. And that's what capital is all about is uh, constantly going further. But I think we're seeing capital reaching a lot of its natural limits now in, especially in the developed world where it can no longer realize the same levels of profit. And it is kind of manifested as a stalling out of technological productivity, uh, technological slowdown and, uh, I think, you know, it's safe to say that we are at the limits of capital. Like Luxembourg kind of like, she had this idea that, you know, when the process of primitive accumulation ends and the last like, you know, un- undespoiled territory is accumulated, 
or assimilated into the capitalist system. Like when the scramble for Africa happened, that's when capitalism enters its final stage of crisis. I think that she was a little premature and that it's more when those areas are finally developed because capital still has room to expand first in China, then in India, then in Africa. When those areas have, you know, reached the stage of development that we're at and is are no longer no longer able to continue self-valorizing in this way, then, you know, where else where else do you go? But, you know, do you keep valorizing capital by working endlessly, even when it's destroying the planet, or do you re- like enjoy what you've built over the course of twelve hundred years of civilization? I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like this too element from Dove's um, discussing labor time and how, let's see, adopting labor time as the standard for wealth is to found this wealth on poverty. It is a reduction of all labor, of all time to labor time and to degrade the individual to the exclusive role of being a worker and instrument of work. Capital is a con- contradiction in action it tends to reduce to a minimum labor time through automation yeah all the while making it the sole source and measure of wealth yeah so i, I mean like that's kind of like this is all he's he's quoting directly from the grundries there and yeah. the, the grundries is marx is kind of like rough sketch for what capital would end up being but capital kind of you know is a very deep and thorough treatment of capitalism marx doesn't really go into what he thinks socialism should look like so the grundries is kind of like a little better in that regard it kind of seems like he was thinking more about what does it look like when the system comes to a close and uh yeah so i mean you know we we have seen that the necessary labor time to you know produce things like basic necessities is absolutely minimal. So you have the system where everything is measured based on value, but that value is diminishing as, you know, like value is the standard of wealth, but value is also the sole measurement of wealth. But now that it's kind of reduced to a minimum, you have this massive amount of work that is now superfluous it's it's surplus labor but it is now you know no longer necessary to produce the basic necessities to survive so we kind of have to produce these socially unnecessary bullshit jobs in graber's estimation like that's what this kind of is about is that the basic necessities and the basic you know needs of everyday life can be produced in yeah so 15 hours like to use i mean i don't know if this is an accurate estimation uh but you know, Keynes is 15 hours, or I think that was the same amount that Black posits as likely, you know, we probably produce all that we need to survive as a species in 15 hours, but we have a 40 hour work week. So, you know, we have, you know, 33% of people in the production and agriculture sectors actually making that stuff. And then 66% of people who are just shuffling papers around and, you know, moving things from one place to another and not actually doing productive work. So the idea is to distribute that actual necessary work equitably so that, you know, rather than having a division of labor where you have people being paid to be artists, everyone can, you know, like that's this famous Marx quote, which is that like the, in socialism, you know, you can be a hunter in the morning, a uh, critic in the afternoon, 
a uh, artist at night, all without becoming a hunter, a critic, or an artist. You can kind of participate in all these activities right. f- as freely chosen. A hunter in the morning, a a, uh, a podcaster by by <laughs> afternoon, and a shit poster by, by night. night. Yeah. Or, or you could reverse <laughs> reverse those last two. Yeah, yeah. I think here too, which is and something interesting that Dove mentions, is a society cannot be organized on the direct calculus of average labor time without sooner or later this general equivalence materializing, giving birth to some variant of money. And I think even within the uh, Spanish Civil War, mm-hmm. they did have to result to using utilizing labor vou- uh, vouchers at some point. Yeah, I, th- I think later on during this is that like time. one issue of contention I have with Dove. I, don't, I think that as a transitionary measure, you know, right, like whereas in communism there will be the idea is that you know it's classless, stateless society, moneyless as well. I think that labor vouchers can be a handy tool of transition and have kind of not been theorized as you know readily as they could be especially with technology like blockchain that could automate that right but what's the difference i guess like between labor, labor vouchers and money so but like, i think even like what he's getting at it's not the it's a cause and effect it's like the material base or the material nucleus is this idea of measuring like labor time yeah itself as is the sim is the disease yeah, yeah, that, I think that necessitates an, a form of equivalency in whether it be labor vouchers or money or like whatever form that takes. Yeah, I think that's kind of a result of you know economizing and the need to in the way that we me- measure everything in the terms of productivity. You know, productivity is really just a measure of time that it takes to do a task. Right. Yeah. So he's saying, you know, not everything should be based on doing it in the fastest way possible. There are some things that should just be enjoyed for the, you know, time it takes to, you know, plant and maintain a garden without economizing on everything. And that it's possible to do that in a, you know, communist society. Yeah. Because wasn't it, was it a banana as well that was kind of talking about how, there's no like there's a difference between a housekeeper coming to your house and cleaning her house as opposed to you doing it. And even if you're mm. taking the same amount of time to perform the right, task right. itself, that though there's no equivalence really between those even though the like the time measure is the same. Yeah, yeah. The work being performed is the same. Those yeah. aren't really there's no What one of them is being there. done for that the purpose of like value fetching a value and the other one is just being done for the sake of itself yeah and i i think yeah i mean i i think that's kind of like a stumbling block for a lot of people they kind of have framed so much of society in terms of productivity and how things get done that they can't really envision how a society would operate without money but i mean a a lot of the fact is that you know you would do these things that you outsource to other people yourself. I mean, you would take care of your own household. You would cook for yourself. And I mean, that stuff would all be made easier with the kind of gains that capital has brought in the form of machinery and automation. So the idea is that in a communist society, you're not struggling against the constant needs imposed on you by the natural world. You're able to take advantage of this you know, massive apparatus of capital to 
do that on your own and you know it makes life easier yeah like the the ostensible reason for and this is kind of like the core contradiction that Dave identifies is that you know uh, capital and he had, he identifies this I think by like looking at one of Marx's earlier works where he idealistically was like you know automation should be hypothetically uh, fetching reduced work time to do everything you know if you create a machine to uh, cook your thing without having to you know stoke a fire or whatnot you have reduced the amount of time it takes to do something but the problem of capitalism is that that you know, those savings and labor time are automatically economized on and you now have to produce more things with that, you know, capital and in order to fetch a profit, like you're not just using the capital to uh, service your needs. You're using the capital to service the profit motive. So you're not, you know, just baking yourself a pie. You need to bake 20 pies so that you can have one for yourself and sell the 19 others for, you know, a return on investment. Right. Yeah. I just think, I like this idea that money gives labor a material form. Yeah. I think it's, it's yeah. an interesting thing. I also think it's really interesting how Doveg discusses credit and debt preceding money as mm-hmm. proof that we, the masses of ancient peasants, who were in debt before the in debt before the invention of money, which I think is interesting um, because I even myself I hadn't really considured that mm-hmm. historically. I figured I thought you know oh no those no, no. would be like co co developed. Yeah no I mean like currency doesn't appear until the seventh century uh, BC, but like the concept of debt and like we first see debt appear like that's what great. I mean I think that's in. what the like the cuneiform Sumerian yeah, stuff. Yeah, like so that's like the why first, the you know, invented. Yeah, that was that was an accounting of debt. And I mean, like the first instances of debt and debt slavery slavery occur in Sumer at the same time. Uh, and they're me- measured in like she- shekels, which is uh, a shekel was like the word for 10 sheaps of barley. So they, they were, you know, measuring things based on value already, but they hadn't developed money per se. Like value was already in operation right. in those societies, and that's why you know debt could be said to exist. But debt is money. Debt is. debt is money before money is brought into the world. I guess yeah, money becomes a more convenient means for you know, like the that that, idea that, is that, that, that general equivalency. It, it becomes thing. the general equivalency, so you know you don't have to do barter which never actually existed in a historical sense like you know that was a mistake on adam smith and marx's part that like barter never actually was a real historical phenomena you know societies before debt and money had like systems of reciprocity where they would just like social ties you know determined who got what basically um and yeah when debt appears on the scene uh it is completely coincident with the rise of the state, with the rise of slavery and money comes after that and money turns into capital and suddenly here we are. Yeah. I like this too. No society can survive without productive activity, but modern society is the first to live under the domination of waged work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think 
product like the the core uh thing to understand about the abolition of work is not that it, it entails the abolition of productive activity it de links the productive activity from the need to fetch a profit and to be waged and you know you're still producing uh like there's there's a great banana quote which is like uh you know after the revolution comes what will we eat and his answer is answer is simply like what, what we, we produce. produce it's it's not you know you know we don't need to constantly be producing like a surplus of uh you know that like that's what you were talking about with the milk being poured out as a result of covid is like you don't need this like massive factory farming system unless you're trying to monetize right, yeah. it yeah very true yeah like it's it's you can simply just grow food and eat it that's also one of the like uh, just to get off on a total tangent though is like that's like the pro- the destruction of productive labor too <laughs> which is like yeah yeah absolutely. Nega- it's like this negation of- well i mean creative destruction was always like the name of the game in capitalism is like you know you create and you you know the things you create are obsolesced by you know new products and things like that but like there is a massive amount of destruction that is like built into the system whether it be planned obsolescence or war that you know clears the way for new capital to fetch value like fetch a profit yeah that just though i think bolsters this whole argument for anti-work though is because under capital it's like your those the work all the work Think about all the labor that went into producing that milk because it's not like it's an endless amount of labor went towards Mm -hmm. arriving at that, that milk. And labor is, you know, like we said, like I said earlier, so it's like the highways, the transportation, the growth of the feed, the machines, the mining of the materials that made the machines. The primitive accumulation of the land that made it possible. Yeah, exactly. It's like on, it's this huge, huge history of thousands, like all this energy and effort went into. Yeah, from like the. It was just like lit on fire in an instant. Yeah, yeah. Just to serve. Burning the money. Just to serve (laughs) what purpose? Yeah. Which is like, that's the ultimately, that to me is the real germ of like this anti work. Yeah. Idea is yeah. like fuck that. Why why enslave ourselves mm-hmm. for nothing? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It makes no sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it's it's just a matter of, you know, reducing work to the amount of work that actually needs doing and then a constant, you know, it can be a constantly lessening amount based on the, you know, advancement of scientific progress when scientific scientific progress is unli- unlinked from the kind of impulses of capital. Yeah, I mean, it's a matter of appropriating what has been built for freedom rather than for continued, you know, accumulation. Yeah. And I mean, that accumulation had a historical precedent. It's not like it was, you know, this is kind of like where the contradiction between anarchists who are like, you could have this society at any time and Marxists who believe that, you know, you have to have a certain level of development of capital in order to achieve that egalitarian uh, communist society. You, but now that the capital is there, there's really no reason not to seize it for ourselves and for our own pleasure and free development. Yeah. 
I guess that's kind of like a good transition into maybe like uh, the kind of critique of productivism that kind of Gores and Black, or not not Echo Gores, uh, Banana and Black kind of level at the rest of the left, uh, which is like, you know, Banana has that great quote, which is like, the, the world of the future must be one where everyone works fine. So we will have imposed slavery on everyone with the exception of those who make it function and who for that, for that reason become the, fu- become the new bosses. Like, I think that des- describes the kind of like Stalinist revolution very well. Like, yeah. you know, there was this work ethic that is so kind of like inextricably, inextricably linked to the image of Soviet com- communism that it's hard to think about socialism without immediately coming to mind these like socialist realist uh, visions of Stakhanovite factory workers, you know, toiling away massively. Yeah. I mean, like, he, like, Banana also talks about how the kind of union movement and the labor movement was the first to kind of be corrupted because of its proximity to these, right. like, impulses of capital and the need to kind of manage the workers in a way that, you know, Black has the good quote, which is like, the uh, the bosses and the union bosses uh, are both in agreement that we should sell our uh, work for money. They're just arguing over the price. Right. Yeah. And then I forget to whom it is, but they have this quote about the mode of production, like the problem not being the mode of production, but that it's a mode of production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That production itself. is like the goal above all else. Right. And I mean, for, you know, for the Soviet government, that was a, you know, physical necessity. It was a necessity to produce, to make up for the yeah. poverty of the, you know, feudal backwater that they inherited from the Tsars. Like, right. uh, but pre- now there's like kind of just a Protestant work ethic that keeps it all intact. You know, it, it's, it's not historical necessity that uh, keeps this whole system of work, you know, it's it's impossible to imagine any future without it. It's It's just... You know, we're so used to the idea that we should be working constantly that we can't really imagine a future without work. Yeah. And we even find ourselves in our downtime. We mentioned this a bit earlier, but there's a like sense of guilt, not only that I spoke about earlier in terms of not enjoying one's time off or leisure time fully, but also being productive within that that downtime too. Like, yeah, let yeah. me learn a new skill or mm-hmm. do like there's this push. I think even many people on the left fall prey to the same kind of weird, bizarre, like fetishized idea of always being improving, like yeah, continual growth or improvement or like skills and, and so forth. Yeah. That has this very, I, I think ultimately like it's a, it's Harmful, sort of a, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, legacy of the left has always been kind of organized around the workplace and we really need to think about how it might be organized outside the workplace. And I think, you know, there's a sense of capitalist realism that has been kind of shattered with a lot of the COVID and the protests that, you know, suddenly we're kind of negotiating a terrain of social struggle again in a way that we weren't over the last 30, 40, 50 years and experimenting and seeing, I don't know, seeing something different for sure. Chaz is definitely an interesting 
phenomena as far as that goes. Uh, this is a pretty good piece or quote from the Bonanno. Basically, the way capital is physically organized at the present time makes it vulnerable to any revolutionary structure capable of deciding its own timing and means of attack. It is quite aware of this weakness and is taking measures to compensate for it. The police are not enough, not even the army. It requires constant vigilance by the people themselves, even the most humble part of the proletariat. So, to do this, it must divide the class front. It must spread the myth of the danger of armed organizations among the poor, along with that of the sanctity of the state, morality, the law, and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think you definitely see that. Like, I think he talks about the way that like people have been marshaled to, you know, police each other, and like I think you see oh, that with okay. the pro- protests, yes. like the peaceful so-called protesters who are, you know, upset when they see a Wendy's burning, <laughs> like. This is an expression of, you know, anger being levied against property and people are just like, they freak out at the sight of property being kind of brought back into the terrain of struggle, I guess. Yeah. What's funny though is like on that, (laughs) on that note of like creative destruction, in a sense, this is like job creation too, which is like the scary part of how capitalism can like re-territorialize yeah. shit like this. Whenever yeah, there yeah. is sort of this de- deterritorializing force of, you know, genuine, uh, you know, insurrection, etc. right? Yeah, there's also this like, I don't know, really stupid critique, I feel like, that comes from the property destruction. Like a lot of armed joy is about just attacking capital head on, you know, not having any moral qualms about destroying property or the law or anything like that, that, uh, you know, even ostensibly revolutionary organizations are, you know, afraid of, but like, there's a lot like this, you know, critique level, this, like you're destroying your own community, but like, as a Wendy's really part of your community, it's like 10, uh, someone on Twitter today, I think called it like 10 really shitty jobs making incredibly unhealthy food. (laughs) Like, is that really community? It's yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really bizarre, fucked up kind of thing. And I, I want to read this quote, too, from Bonanno that I think is great. Mm-hmm. People are tired of meetings, the classics, pointless marches, theoretical dis- discussions that split hairs in four, mm-hmm. endless directions, the monotony and poverty of certain political analyses. They prefer to make love, smoke, listen to music, go for walks, sleep, laugh, play, redacted policemen, redacted <laughs> journalists, redacted judges, Redacted barracks. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bonanno is not pull punches by any means. Uh, I think, really great polemic, I think. Yeah, but I mean, like, at the same time, I think what's really beautiful about Arm Joy is that, like, you know, he kind of critiques the way that the left has really embraced this kind of moralistic framework of, like, uh, like, he has this one quote, which is like critiquing what he called. So it's like during the night of the guillotine, the foundations for a new spectacle are laid. Capital regains strength. First, the boss's heads fall. Then those of the revolutionaries. No matter what, the bosses must pay for their wrongs. Very well. We will, ca- we will carry the Christian ethic of sin, judgment, and reparation into the revolution, as well as the concepts of debt and payment, clearly of mercantile origins. So he's kind of crit- critiquing like this, like, yeah, Christ- Christian mercantile work ethic that is really like it's like not even leftist organizations have internalized yeah. it to a idle hands degree. of the devil's workshop. And he really talks about the kind of like 
praxis of cultivating joy. And I think, you know, you, you see these street protests and I think you do see joy, like authentic joy. Like obviously it's, it's their protests happening because of terrible loss and mourning that, you know, the black community is forced to relive every month more, you know, like I think what four or five, there have been like four or five police killings since the protest started. And now like they've spread to like Atlanta and whatnot, but like you do see like people out in the streets, you know, playing music and fighting the cops and uh, like Chaz, especially like they're planting gardens, giving foods, food away for free. Uh, you know, there, there is an element of joy to just like completely rejecting the system that oppresses us kind of invisibly and on an everyday basis. There's a wholesale rejection of it happening. And, you know, some of it is going to happen in uh, like in scary ways, like looting. But, you know, a lot of it is also, I think, I don't know, joy and the experience of feeling power, like power again. Yeah. Having agency. Power to, if it's not to, you know, construct something, then to just attack the system that is so oppressive and, you know, just attack wholeheartedly. And I think, yeah, I, I think, I think the element of joy in that piece can't be understated. Like, I think it has a lot, it's, it's definitely related to, it kind of comes out of the tradition of, you know, uh, Deleuze and Guattari, they talk about desire as a structuring principle for, and an important principle for organizing a revolution. You can't just put things in these moralizing lights. You have to create an atmosphere of joy and, you know, you have to, I guess, construct a narrative of desire, of desire for a new and better world. You can't just, I don't know, moralize. It's This is a good quote from the piece, I think, that kind of goes along with what you're saying. There is no, no joy in work, even if it is self-managed. There is no joy in sacrifice, death, and revenge, just as there is no joy in counting oneself. Arithmetic is the negation of joy. Yeah, there's there's another really great one, which is like kind of related to that Christian moralist critique he has about uh, the ethics of debt and whatnot, which is that when we first become conscious of the process of exploitation, the first thing we feel is a sense of re revenge. The last is joy. Liberation is seen as setting right a balance that has been upset by the wickedness of capital, not as the coming of a world of play to take the place of the world of work. So I think thinking of it in that term, you know, Thinking of it as how can we create this world of play? How can we uh, democratize art, make uh, science available to the masses? Like, how can we create a world where the structure is not, you know, determined exclusively by the profit motive and is instead determined by individual flourishing and, you know, the like? I think there's a really good Dave quote too, where he, uh, he says, like, in, I, I think it might even be directly quoting Marx, but he says in the communist society, the measure of wealth will not be value or labor time. The measure of wealth will be free time. So the more free time that you have, the wealthier the society is. And I think that's, yeah, 100% the essence of the project is to claw back, you know, those that 15-hour work week that Keynes hypothesized. It is to say we don't need to be constantly at work, torturing ourselves, preparing for work in our off time, valorizing capital, we can do what we want and build a society that is more pleasant to live in, in the process, rebuild these communities and 
the sense of society that has been lost in, you know, atom, atomized late capitalism. Yeah. We must counter the satisfaction of spectacular needs imposed by consumer society with the satisfaction of man's natural needs seen in the light of that primary essential need, the need for communism. Yeah, I mean, I think that the left has kind of got to embrace this aesthetic of joy a little more. I mean, like, and, you know, back to Deleuze and Guattari, this concept of desire, there is kind of like a reactionary libidinal investment, you know, I think Deleuze and Guattari would say in that, in the left, in that, like, when they have that quote from Antiedipus, which is like, when I hear desire, I reach for my gun, (laughs) Uh, which I think is a bastardization of a quote from some Nazi who who originally said it about culture, but... Uh, you know, there is this like idea that we need to work and suffer to build the bright future for our children. And there's no imminent, you know, reward in that. Like where, where is the, like, if you're working for the people, is that really better than working for capital? You know, if you're slaving your life away 40 days, 40 hours a week, right. In a, you know, factory or an office what's yeah. the quote if it does it matter if it is it i think it's uh is it kropotkin or pruden or oh, like, oh bakunin the people's stick the people's yeah stick. yeah <laughs> yeah it doesn't matter if you're being beaten by the people's stick it's still you know yeah 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 i, I think that there is a lot to be said about kind of reappropriating joy as a praxis that is inherently revolutionary in itself yeah yeah, because it can't, it's not something that can be quantified. It's not something that have has an equivalence. It's something that is outside the notion of value that capital, mm-hmm. the lot, like the notion of value that capital relies on. It's something that can't be recuperated by the system itself. It's something yeah. entirely, I don't know, and something it's, it's that not transcends. Autonomous. It's, it's not like an autonomous system like capital, you know, is autonomous and demands are work without us realizing it it's just something you do for its own sake you know and i feel like yeah i i feel like that kind of like sense of guilt that comes up when you're just lounging about is really you know is capital whispering in your ear you know time to get back to work right work on yourself you need to be productive at every hour of the day i feel like it's we need to unlearn this massive neurotic kind of self-punishment and self-flagellation over yeah. not being productive yeah not enjoying our the time that we're supposed to enjoy too like the guilt over that too i think is the other like thing that people don't really wrestle with so much it's not so obvious mm-hmm. it's like this way that uh time off functions And I mean, part of the political equation is also that, you know, we are being starved for a lot of those things deliberately by a government that embraces, you know, austerity and uh, a business kind of structure that, you know, pays as little as possible. And there is an element of struggling on that terrain, too. But we also have to think, and I think this is kind of Marxism's ultimate shortcoming as a philosophy, is that it is an excellent Form, it's critique perfected, but there's kind of no vision of what the future should look like. And right. you know that could even be said about Marx and Capital, is that he really did a great job of describing capitalism, but left very little on what the society of the future would look like. And I think that it's 
kind of our responsibility not to, you know, put it off to the revolution that we think about these kind of things, but to think about what we want yeah. from our lives. Like a think. prefigurative politics. Yeah, yeah. Like we need to see the, we need to have the vision now yeah as fe- as opposed to like this sort of teleological oh we're working towards mm-hmm. the thing no we need to we start with the new world yeah and then we work from there yeah absolutely and i mean i, I think that's kind of like been a major thing for me and like finding out what i want to do like so you know from these bullshit jobs that i had i i felt like i was uh you know, not making the most of my skills. I, I felt like I needed to do something big and world changing. So I went to grad school and I started learning to, you know, do accounting and whatnot. I went to grad school for public policy. And, you know, I eventually realized that I, with that as well, I was training for a job that I didn't really want. I, I, I wasn't, you know, doing what I wanted to do. I was training for a job and, you know, doing all these readings that like were distracting me from the stuff I was actually interested in learning. And I was, yeah, I was kind of working for someone else's vision of the future, I guess. Uh, And I think now, like, my goal is not defined by work. Work is now, for me, something I will do in order to fuel my own personal goals in my life, which are, you know, related to educating people on, you know, socialist politics and economics and philosophy and whatnot. And money and work will just be something that allows me to build towards that goal. But it's not, I no no longer view it as the defining uh, impetus of my life, I guess. Right. Yeah. It's not an ends within itself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a means to, it's a means to the end of, you know, what I actually am interested in doing. And I don't need you know, that validation from work that I feel like I did when I was doing all these things to kind of work my way up the managerial ladder or whatever. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel about uh, episode wise? Do you think we've covered uh, enough or <coughs> any, any outstanding points you wanted Sorry. to hit? We haven't already. Um, no, I mean, I think that. dove into. <laughs> I think that pretty much covers most of it. Yeah. I mean, um, I think that what's happening now is definitely heartening. You know, it, it feels like, I, I guess maybe the last thing we could talk about is the protests and the kind of critique of organization that, uh, they bring up. And I think black and, uh, Bonanno kind of like Marshall, which is that a lot of these protests, and the ones that have been most successful have kind of been organic and spontaneous and attempts at like steering them have been met with like, I think failure. So like, uh, you know, you'll see people on Twitter complaining, like, why is no one forming a Vanguard or whatnot? (laughs) Like, and in Austin, we have the red guards of Austin. Now the Mike Ramos brigade, uh, who are, who tried to kind of commandeer the protests and a lot of the, early stages and then there was a competing organization the austin justice coalition which was kind of a liberal reformist organization and their attempts to kind of organize the protests kind of led to a diffusion of the revolutionary energy i guess that was spontaneous and directed at the you know police and the immediate institutions of oppression i think there is a lot to be said for you know letting the kind of thing develop organically yeah 
I would of course be the first person to agree there. There's a couple of quotes from from Dove that I think are great ending points. Mm-hmm. Um, if you'll indulge me there, unless you had anything else. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, go ahead and do that. I think there's a good kind of black quote that wraps it all up as well. Yeah. I thought this was this fan, this is really fantastic um discussion of of social relations. The communi- the communizing motor of action will not be the search for the best or the most equal way of distributing goods, but rather the human relations and activities found therein. Within communization, activity is more important than its productive result mm-hmm. because this result depends on an activity and of ties that could and would strengthen bonds among the insurgents. That which stirs the proletarian to act is not the need to eat. It is the need to create among other proletarians a social relation, which among other things will also feed them. The surrealists asked themselves if we suffered either too little or too much from reality. At any rate, the absurdity of work will never be enough to do away with it. We will need nothing less than a revolution. Yeah, that's a great one. I think the one that kind of sums up the political project is a great quote from Black, which is that it's now it is now possible to abolish work and replace it insofar as it serves useful purposes with a multitude of new kinds of free activities. To abolish work requires going at it from two directions, quantitative and qualitative. On the one hand, we can we have to cut down massively on the amount of work being done. At present, most work is useless or worse, and we should simply get rid of it. On the other hand, and I think this is the crux of the matter in the revolutionary new departure, we have to take what useful work remains and transform it into a pleasing variety of game-like and craft-like pastimes, indistinguishable from other pleasurable pastimes, except that they happen to yield useful end products. Only a small and diminishing fraction of work serves any useful purpose independent of the defense and reproduction of the work system and its political and legal appendages. 20 years ago, Paul and Percival Goodman estimated that just 5% of the work being done Presumably, the figure, if accurate, is lower now, would satisfy our minimal needs for food, clothing, and shelter. Theirs is only an educated guess, but the main point is quite clear, directly or indirectly. Most work serves the unproductive purposes of commerce or social control. And I think there's another excellent, you know, the one that you singled out, the arm joy quote, which is a good ending point, as well as the great quote about surrealism. But it's a hurry to attack capital before new ideology makes it sacred to you. Hurry to refuse work before some new sophist tells you yet again that work will set you free. <laughs> hurry to play. Yes. Hurry to arm yourself. Hell yeah. Yeah, so uh, work as the world relax, I guess. <laughs> relax. Go to work. <laughs> yeah, that's a good place to end. <laughs> but uh, tell us about uh, where we can find you on social media, where we can find Utopia TV, etc. So yeah, I'm on... Uh, Twitter at techno at technoecologic and the first episode of Utopia TV was supposed to come out on May first, but as it turns out, uh, learning After Effects and uh, Premiere has been a lot harder than I thought. Uh, but my first episode on Nick Land should be out, I think, sometime this week. I-, I guess, yeah, this episode will be released next Sunday, so it should be out. If not, I will be deeply ashamed of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely put a put a link in the show notes there. Uh, any anything else? we let you no that uh covers it yeah thanks for having me on absolutely uh, to be back soon in terms of the podcast uh just want to remind you again that you have a patreon at patreon.com forward slash m-u-h-h would appreciate your patronage if you feel so moved also uh, you can follow the podcast uh twitter at unconscious h-h and 
on Instagram as well at UnconsciousHH, but this will be Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week to go relax. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.